series. And in just a moment, we're going to be looking at chapter 9 together. We're looking at one chapter per week. And uh, maybe you've noticed this as we've gone through chapters 1 through 8, a couple of things. Jesus is um, becoming more and more clear about who he is, God, God in the flesh. Sometimes rather overtly, sometimes rather in opaque ways, but he is God. And you've also noticed that increasingly the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are becoming more and more agitated with him. Last week we looked at chapter 8, the very beginning where the Pharisees are quick to uh, throw stones at the woman caught in adultery. Jesus talks them off the ledge. Uh, We didn't get into the rest of chapter 8, just too much of it. But as you get into chapter 8, you'll see the theme of truth emerge. And what we find out is that Jesus is the embodiment of truth as well as the dispenser of truth. And when you come to know him, the truth and Jesus sets you free. What does that mean? Free to live the way God has always called you to live. We are set We are set free. Uh, At the very end of chapter 8, when Jesus makes it very clear that he claims to be God, the the, the religious leaders pick up stones to stone him. Why do they do that? Because they cannot see with their spiritual eyes. They cannot see that he is God. That brings us to chapter 9, which is all of chapter 9 is what you might call a living parable. A living parable. A parable is designed to, to, to convey one primary spiritual truth. And if we were to boil the chapter 9 down into one spiritual truth, we, we could say it like this. There are none so blind as those who will not see. We'll come back to that idea. All right? Now, as we get into chapter 9, we get into an assumptive question. Have you ever heard that term before? An assumptive question. Do you know what that is? An assumptive question is where um, you, you presume the answer that the questioner anticipates. An assumptive question is where the, 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 the answer is presumed, right? Like, for example, somebody says to you or you say to somebody, what's wrong? Well, maybe nothing's wrong. Maybe everything's right, but you presume that something's wrong. Or maybe... Um, Uh, Where are you going to college this fall? You're presuming that this person even wants to go to college, that everybody needs to go to college. That's not true. Or you might say, uh, uh, how long have you lived in the U.S.? But because of facial ethnicity, maybe from Asia or Africa or somewhere, you think they have not been here very long, but in reality their parents and their grandparents have lived here for a long period of time. Um, Here's another one. How many kids do you have? Assuming someone has or even wants kids. That's, a presum- that's an assumptive question. 30 years ago in ministry, you know, it's one of those things where you just learn. I walked up to a woman, dear woman, I said, when do you do? Never done that again. That's a, that was an assumptive question. All right. Chapter 9 begins with, a presumpt- or with an assumptive question. It goes like this. As Jesus, this is how it starts, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Can you see the assumptive question there? They're presuming that sin caused this person to be blind, which was not uncommon in Jewish culture back in those days. I mean, people had an idea that if something was wrong with you, you had done something wrong. Think back to the story of Job. Remember how Job loses his family and his entire portfolio and his good friends who start so well come alongside him and they try to comfort him, but then they slip into these assumptive questions like, Job, you're suffering. You're in pain. 
what did you do wrong? How did you sin? That is common. But the reality is, you know, you can't always draw a direct line between somebody's pain and a bad decision they've made. You just can't all the time. And so Jesus helps them understand that there's something else going on here behind the scenes. This is how he responds. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him or the work of God or the glory of God could be seen in him. That is a pretty amazing response from Jesus. What he's saying is that what happened to this blind man was allowed by God so that the work of God could be seen in this person's life. So what I want to do just for a moment is sort of make a a sidebar comment about this idea of God doing a work in the midst of pain and suffering. And perhaps you are going through some kind of hardship right now, suffering, pain, and you, you cannot draw a direct line to a bad decision you've made, to a moral failure in your life, um, to a sin you've committed. You cannot, you cannot draw a line. In fact, you, you could honestly say, I have been walking with Jesus. I have been paying attention to his word. I've been trying to be obedient. As Paul says, I've, I've tried to keep in step with the Spirit. And you may or, or, or may not be asking this question, what did I do or what am I doing to deserve this in my life? That might be the very question the blind man was asking for all those years as he sat there blind from birth. But here's what we know is true. That God can reveal his glory, his work, his power through suffering. I mentioned Job earlier, the story of Job. He lost his family, lost his portfolio, lost everything. And, And at the end of the... so. In this story, for 35 chapters in the book of Job, I don't know if you've read it, it's 42 chapters long, but for 35 of those chapters, God is silent. And Job is starting to pick on God, like, where are you? What have I done? And all this. And he thinks, too. I, he knows he hasn't done anything wrong. His friends think he has. And we know he hasn't. What have I done? At the very end of the story, Job relents, not repents, because he didn't sin. He didn't step over the edge, but he relents. And what that means is he kicks himself I should have seen that God knew and saw what I did not. God was up to something to show his, his, to show his work, his power, and his glory. Now, Job is like, a, is, is like a foreshadowing of Jesus who went to the cross. Why did Jesus go to the cross? To take your sin and my sin onto himself. But those who are standing there looking at Jesus on the cross think, what a senseless thing this is. But Jesus goes to the cross because he knows that eventually God's glory His work, his power is going to be revealed through what Jesus does on the cross and through his resurrection and ascension into heaven. God has a plan. So let me just say this before I end this sidebar comment. When your day of unexplained pain and suffering comes, understand that God is up to something that ultimately, ultimately, though you may not see it now, is it's for your good and for God's glory, which is why Paul can write with such strong letters in Romans chapter 8, those famous words, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Okay, that's the end of the sidebar comment. What I want to do is kind of get back to the story, and this is what happens next. Then Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. That's just kind of gross. I remember when I was littler, 
uh, I'd have a smudge or something like that on my face. My mom would lick her thumb and, and wipe it off. I mean, I, we do not do that to our kids. Don't do that to your kids. I don't know why Jesus did this, except, you know, back in those days, saliva was considered to have some medicinal value. So maybe he was connecting with the medical community in that way. I don't know. And why did he spit on the dirt? I mean, I just, I'm, it's just amazing thinking of Jesus doing this. He spits on the dirt. Was he sort of recreating the original creation of Adam when, when God just takes dust and creates Adam? We don't know all of that. We do know this, that the man is not yet healed. This is what happens next. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. And I wish we had some time to go into the background of that. It's kind of interesting, but we don't have the time. So the man went and washed and came back. He came back seeing. He came back with vision. Isn't that amazing? What a strange thing. Spit, dirt, mud, and go wash in the pool of Siloam. I mean, crazy. Why, why would this man do that? It, re, it reminds me of the very, do you remember the very first miracle Jesus um, did in John chapter 2, where he turns water to wine? And he looks at these six water jugs that are about 30 gallons each, and he tells the servants to, 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 to go put water in them. And they said, what? And Jesus' mother said, do what he says. Do what he says. This is, this, this is what she says. Do whatever he tells you. And they did. And Jesus turned the water to wine. Now, there's a good lesson there for us. When Jesus tells us to do something, he is prepared to do something in our lives. Not maybe immediate healing, but something. Something. Okay, now, what I would love to do right now is say, what a happy ending. He sees. We don't understand how that miracle worked, but what miracles do we understand. He sees. Happy ending. Let's all go home and the service early. But the problem is um, that the religious leaders now step in. And this is how the story continues. Then they, now this is like the townspeople, the locals, the neighbors of this blind man who, who saw him all his life there as a, as a blind person. Then they, because they didn't understand, took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees, the ones who were supposed to know how this happened, the religious leaders, because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. Now, on the Sabbath, maybe you know that that's, that's, the, that's the day of rest, when you don't do any kind of work. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, asked the man all about it. So the blind man told them, he put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. Bam. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how can an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? There was a, so there was a deep division of opinion among them. Um, long story, uh, made very short. Um, what's the big deal with, with kneading or making mud on a Sabbath day? What's, what's the big deal? Hundreds of years before, the Babylonians took the Israelites, the Jewish people, captive. And that was a terrible time for them. And so when they came back, the religious leaders said, you know what? We were taken captive by the Babylonians because we were so disobedient to God. We walked away from God's law. Let's create all these other laws like fences around God's law, a bunch of do's and don'ts, so that we will never come close to offending God's law again. 
And so that's what they did. They, they, they made a list of hundreds of do's and don'ts, and among them was don't make mud on a Sabbath day. Right? I mean, that, that, was, their, that was their big thing. And so eventually, eventually, this idea of making mud on a Sabbath became more important than helping somebody out. They weren't that excited about this guy being able to see. They just didn't want mud being made on a Sabbath. So in a very real sense, these religious leaders became, over time, blind to the heart of God. They switched places. The, this is important. The blind man now could see, but the religious leaders who had physical sight could not spiritually see, which now brings us back to our bottom line, which is becoming more evident. There are none so blind as those who will not see. Now, now this is not unique to me or unique to us. This actually comes, this saying comes from 1546, from a guy by the name of Robert Haywood. Uh, it's found in, the, in the, random, uh, the random house dictionary of, of popular sayings and proverbs. It's like a proverb. There are none so blind as those who will not see. But I think Robert Haywood, he took that from Jeremiah. You know, the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, who says, listen, you foolish and senseless people with eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. It's possible to have eyeballs, but not be able to see. Now, we can't take time and, and read all of this story, but what happens next, it just gets intense. It gets intense. The, the, the Pharisees, um, they, uh, they, they begin to question whether this blind guy was, this guy who now can see was ever really the guy originally who was blind. And then they call in the blind guy's parents, the guy who sees now, they call in his parents and they ask, do you know what happened? And they say, we don't know. Actually, they did know, but they were afraid to tell the religious leaders because of fear of getting kicked out of the synagogue. And so the story goes. So now comes round two with this blind man now healed. And this is how it goes. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Now, I love his response here. Look at this. See if you recognize it. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. Should we sing it together? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I was blind, but now I see. Written by John Newton, who was a slave trader, who then became a slave abolitionist, who was freed by Christ. Now he could see. He had physical eyes, but now spiritually he could see. But this, this man who's now healed, it just made the Pharisees furious they say, you were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. No. They threw him out of the synagogue. Let, 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 let's, let's go back to, to the beginning of this chapter. Remember the assumptive question? This man's blind because of somebody's sin, either his or his parents' sin, the assumptive question. That was, that was, that was the idea. But now who is really blind and who is really a sinner is starting to become evident. And it brings us back to our bottom line. There are none so blind as those who will not see. So after the man is kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus finds him. 
When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said. He is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The migration of thoughts that he had about Jesus. Now he worships him. If you look back through the story, all of chapter 9, you'll see four different sets of people and how they respond to Jesus. They're the neighbors, the locals. They're not sure what to think. They're surprised, so they take this man to the Pharisees. And then there's the Pharisees. They're distressed, and they are uh, prejudiced. And then you have the parents who believe, but they're afraid. But now you have this man who goes from being blind to seeing, going from acknowledging Jesus as a prophet to Lord to now worshiping him. And this is how the story ends. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you would be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Okay, so that is the end of the living parable. And what we have learned so far is this. You can, the, the blind man now sees, but the Pharisees are the ones who are truly blind. It's their religious arrogance and burdensome rules that have blinded them to the possibility of their own sin and need for Jesus. Well, I'm glad the Pharisees are the Pharisees and I'm not like them. Aren't you glad you're not like them? We don't have that problem with spiritual blindness, but of course we do. What was true of the Pharisees, the religious leaders back then, can also be true of us today because there are none so blind as those who want to see. And I want to ask you, what is it that could lead us into a form of spiritual blindness? What could make us so unaware of our own blindness? And I'm going to put on the screen several responses to that, to that question, right? One might be, first, we compare ourselves to the diluted standards of culture, standards that far, fall, far below God's standard for us. When we live by standards that are less than God's, we fail to see God as he is. Second, we compare ourselves to others and point out their sins so that ours don't seem so bad. I can always find a set of people where I compare myself to them and think, I'm not so bad, but I'm called to compare myself to Jesus. Third, we argue so much for our own righteousness that it leaves little time to reflect on the reality of remaining sin. Those taken together, all those three, and there's probably more, taken together represent what the Bible calls sin, which keeps us from seeing clearly. Sin blinds, it hides, it defends, it blames, it masquerades as acceptable, it points fingers, and it even questions the goodness of God. A, a, a physically blind person, maybe you know somebody who's physically blind, a physically blind person never denies their own blindness. They're aware of it. My, my brother is, is, um, is not completely blind, but he's what you call legally blind. He, he's a walking amazement. Um, he, he finished 
top of his class in law school and now is a really successful attorney in Milwaukee, but he's legally blind. I, I, I tell people that, that he got the smarts in our family, but I got the good looks, which shows you how bad off he is. Um, he, he's an amazing guy, and, but he's, he's, very, he's very aware of his own boundaries. He, he is not allowed to drive. His wife drives him everywhere they go. Spiritually blind people are convinced they can see quite well. They don't see the need or help for help or assistance because they think they can see. Just like the Pharisees thought they were okay. Reminds me of Jeremiah again. Maybe you know the verse where Jeremiah writes, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We can be easily fooled. So let me ask you this. What can we do to avoid spiritual blindness, to make sure we identify the blind spots in our own lives? When I was around 42 years old, I, I, I went to the ophthalmologist. Up to that point, I'd never worn glasses. And there was a pamphlet on the shelf that said, when you turn 40. I had no idea. I had no idea that I would need glasses. I didn't know that's what happens when you turn 40. Some of you have worn glasses much for a much longer period of time. But ever since then, I've worn glasses. And now they're telling me that I need cataract surgery. Wow, really? What? Really? Seriously? Me? I'm glad I go to the ophthalmologist. I need to go to be able to understand what I must do to see physically clearly. No one makes me do that. That's something I want to do. When I first became a Christian at age 20, my, my eyes were open to my need for Jesus. And maybe that's the same for you. But that doesn't change. To be able to see clearly, spiritually, I need to constantly see my need for Jesus. So what I want to do is put on the screen and end this way with just some, some thoughts about how we can avoid spiritual blindness and, and see the way God has intended us to see. Admit that you're more spiritually blind than you realize and seek help. Um, what a great thing to talk about on Father's Day because God is our Father. And, and I'm reading a book right now by Paul Miller called A Praying Life. It's really helpful, but it reminds me that, that God our Father wants us to come to him with our mess, with our dirt, with our needs, with our requests, and he embraces us. He wants to hear us, our, our need for him. That's, that's where we start. Ask God to open your eyes as you read his word. We talk a lot in this room about the importance of reading the Bible. I don't know where you are with that. I would say this that just reading the Bible, there are a lot of great scholars in the world who don't have a clue about who God really is. They know the Bible. I would say we read the Bible with a surrendered spirit. That's important. And then asking God to, to open our eyes to how he wants to change us. I, I don't know if God wants to give you that boat you're asking for or that car or that house or that relationship. I don't know. I can, I can tell you with certainty what God wants to give you, though and that is his character. Pray for that, and you would have eyes to walk in the ways of Christ. Ask him to search your heart and show you where you are blind. They call them blind spots for a reason. We just don't see them. 
Um, maybe you know Psalm 139. It's a, it's a great prayer, and you can make it yours. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any wicked, evil, deceitful, blinded way in me, and then lead me in your way everlasting. Just ask God. And then ask the Lord to give you a humble and receptive heart when Christians you trust confront your sin, even if you think they are totally accurate. Do you have somebody close to you? Man, that's important. You know, Proverbs chapter 27 says that the the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. Open rebuke is better than hidden love. There's wisdom in giving rebuke. There's even great wisdom in receiving it. And why would somebody rebuke us? Because they want to help us get better to see more clearly. It is true. We need to watch out. I think, whoop, I don't think, there it is. There is none so blind as those who will not see. Let's be sure that we walk out of here today determined to see as Jesus has called us to. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And um, please help us to see you clearly. Help us to see life as you called us to see. Help us to have your perspective. Thank you. We ask for your favor. In Jesus' name, amen.